Very, very cool. Very cool. And I was totally stupid. I didn't know anything was going on. I didn't realize it when the first six people I saw had black on. <laughs> I'm real slow, you know. Really am. Well, thank you again, brother. Wow, how incredible. Well, anyway, so we're going to start a new series today. And by the way, that is rain you hear, but it's not snow. So that's good news. Well, we start a new series now for the, for the month of January and called the 4G Challenge. And it, it centers on four commands, four actions that start with the letter G. Today we're talking about gathering, then we're going to talk about growing, then we're going to talk about giving, and then we're going to talk about going. And I really want to challenge you this month to make all four weeks if at all possible. And thank you so much for being here today as we talk about gathering, as we talk about gathering. That really, that is an incredible, incredible video that we just saw. You know, my question is today, you know, how do we line up with that video? Because here's what's cool. You've probably heard some things in that video that you went, wow, that's, that's affirming. In fact, I heard some people clap and go, people go, amen. It's really affirming. And then probably some things in that video that you saw, and you probably went, that makes me feel very uncomfortable. Like, for instance, when the lady said, is there a dress code? Yes, wear clothes. And somebody wants to say, yeah, but, 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 but. And something makes me feel uncomfortable. Here's the deal. It really, really, really is very Jesus-like. When you think of what Jesus did as he was walking this earth, you know, he encountered some very difficult situations, some very difficult people. In fact, if you figured it out, that even though the, the Pharisees and the scribes really had it in their heart to kill him, he never rejected them. He, they were invited to come to dinner. Uh, he ate dinner several times with the very people that hated him the most. So when we gather together, we are to be very Jesus-like. Now, this is a series title, um, and in fact, a package, the graphics, which I'm not really using that much of the graphics, but this is a series that came off the internet, and I'm not using the guy's messages because I just don't do that, but I want you to know that, that the 4G thing came off the internet, but I'm sure, and I didn't read his sermon, I'm sure he approached it this way. He would challenge you to make a commitment, and I'm going to mention it at the end, make a commitment to come to church for the next quarter very, very consistently. In fact, his challenge was, the one part I do know about this, he challenges people to go three months, the first quarter, without missing a Sunday. I really felt led to take a whole different approach to that, not challenge you so much as to come to church, but challenge us to be the church. Now, now what happened today was not such an affirming thing for me. And that is how church ought to be on a daily basis. That's what church ought to be every time someone walks in a room. They should really sense and feel that this is a good place to be. Now, I wanted to start this morning. Be sure you get your sermon sheet out because we'll be in several different areas today. I want to start out in that wonderful scripture in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, when we talk about the birth of the church. You know, I'm sorry, not the birth of the church, the promise of the church. The promise of the church. It's when Peter does, it's, it's one of Peter's great moments, you know. And it's when Peter, you know, Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And some say Jeremiah, some say Elijah, some say one of the prophets. And that's when, when Jesus asked the guys and said, so who do you say that I am? And that's when Peter said, you know, we believe you're the Messiah. We believe you're the Son of God. And, and Jesus' response is a great promise. In Matthew chapter 16, here's what he says. And I also say to you that you're Peter. And on this rock... Pause. Now, we taught this over and over again, so I really want you to get the truth. He's not talking about, even though the word Peter means small stone, the word rock is the word Petra, a, a large, massive, unmovable stone. So he says, upon this rock, not speaking of Peter, but something else. He's speaking about the truth that he is the Son of God. 
What, if, what we're seeing in our culture today is people really don't have a problem with church. People don't have a problem with religion. People don't have a problem even with the general concept of God. But the, the fact that Jesus claims to be the Son of God, that He claims to be the exclusive way, the one way to heaven, really bugs people. But the bottom line is, the truth is the truth, that Jesus Christ is the way, not a way. He is the way to heaven. Because He is the Messiah, because He is the Son of God. So He says, upon this rock, I will build. Pause. Jesus is the one who builds the church. Now, he, he, he says, I will build my church. Now, let's back up just a little bit. I know you've heard this before, but I really want to burn this in your heart because I know, I know how weak we are in this area. When we see the word church, 90% of us still think I'm going to church. And that really means I'm not going to be the church in a building. We are going to a building. We're going to go to a building and meet. And the word church is that German word that came in later on is not the Greek. The word, Greek word is ekklesia, and it means called out one. So really what Jesus is saying is, is that on this rock, I will assemble, I will put together my ecclesia, I will put together a group of people. Now, I've often said that this is not our church. And again, our brain pops the building. But the truth is, yeah, you know what? With the trustees, the fact we're incorporated. Yeah, this is our building. Okay. Yeah, you'd be right in saying that. But it's his church. We may have our names on a piece of property, but it's his church. And when you say church, you think about your people. Look around to the folks that are gathered here today. And you are, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're a Christ follower, you are the church. And that's why it's important we say we don't go to church. We are the church. We don't go to church. We're called to be the church. So, so in this great promise, Jesus says, I'm going to, on this rock, on this truth, that I am the son of God, I'm going to call out, I'm going to build my ecclesia. I'm going to call out my people. And I love this. This should be a real encouragement to you. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Not against the building. Against the called out people of God. We are victorious. We're not going to be victorious. On a good day, we're sometimes victorious. We are victorious. And the body as a whole is invincible because Jesus Christ is invincible. All the powers of hell cannot defeat the ecclesia, the called out ones of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Keep that in mind. I know in our culture, it just seems like they win too often. They're not even winning skirmishes. The battle is already won. Jesus Christ is the victory. He defeated sin on, on the cross. He defeated death in His resurrection. And He is the all-powerful Son of God. And we are His people. We're not strong in ourselves. We're not even strong in our numbers. We are strong in who claims us, who we believe in, and that's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. A great promise. So when did that promise come to fulfillment? When did it happen? Well, we see that in Acts chapter 2. And again, for brevity's sake, I don't want to spend a lot of time, but there are a couple of verses on your sermon sheet. The first is Acts 2.41. Now, again, you know the story. Day of Pentecost. They pray and probably, and argumentatively, exactly when was the church born. 
Most theologians will tell you the church was definitely born on the, on the day of Pentecost and probably more specifically when the, when the Holy Spirit fell on those 120 people, that was the birth of the church. And Peter gets all fired up. You know, the guy who later denied Jesus or later denied Jesus, he gets all fired up and preaches this powerful, powerful message. And the Bible says this. So those who received his word, were Peter's word, his message, were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 people on the day of Pentecost were added to the ecclesia. That's how Jesus builds his church. People trust Jesus Christ, come to faith in him. They become a part of the ecclesia. And it grows and it grows and it grows. It grows here in America. It grows in Canada. It grows in Mexico. It grows in Africa. It grows in Europe. It grows in Central Asia. It grows as people trust Jesus Christ as Savior. And that day, 3,000 people. And it wasn't Peter. It wasn't that Peter was such a great speaker. It wasn't Peter that spoke the right, amount, the right amount of time. It wasn't Peter because he used the right words. Who was it? It was God. Now say that. It's God. Now, now don't forget this. Whatever happens in this ecclesia is God. Whether we meet Lottie Moon or Annie Armstrong or whether we send missionaries or whether we go to Africa or Haiti or Nicaragua or whether we have a block party or whether we give shoes away, it's all God. It's not just like Peter preached in the power of the Holy Spirit and God brought that harvest. So in our ecclesia, everything that God has done is done by the power of God. To God be the glory, great things he has done. So it's really cool. And just like verse number 46 picks up and says this. And day by day. Now watch the conversion here. Watch what's happened. Now remember these guys have been believers like days. Okay. Now, you know, for instance, when your baby's born, how many babies do you know that are three days old or potty trained? Don't you wish? Don't you? You know, if you could call God up and say, hey, God, I've got a recommendation for a, a model change, an upgrade. Would you get them potty trained at day three? You know, I still remember when Rebecca was born and she did her first job. And I called the nurse. It's what, you know, the, the, what do you call it? It's the black tarry stuff. I called the nurse. I said, ma'am, she's potty. She said, sir, the diapers are right there. I would call for an upgrade immediately for that. Upgrade for immediately. So here they are just very young. And look what God does in their life. Day by day, attending the temple together. All right. Now, they were attending the temple before, but now they go to the temple for a different reason. They come to worship Jesus, even at the temple. And, and breaking bread in their homes. There's fellowship there. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. It just happened. You know, they met Jesus that day and Jesus changed their heart. And these guys were in the worst circumstances. Rome was an oppressive force. Um, The scribes and Pharisees were an oppressive force. And they need Jesus. And all of a sudden they have glad and generous hearts. It's kind of what Jesus does. Amen? It's kind of what Jesus does. And the Bible says, having favor with all the people. That don't mean just the Christians. That means society. They were so different in their actions, even society there embraced them. And what happened? And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So so in this early church, this this promise, this, this promise and this birth, we see the ecclesia and get a glimpse of what it should look like. So what I want to do next is I want to take two words. I want to show you. From, a, from my perspective, what the ecclesia, what the church ought to look like, and really some things we ought to avoid. Now, here's how this happened. Last Sunday, we, um, we took three or four days of vacation, and we were in um, Nashville on the Lord's Day. 
And so we decided we should go to church. You know, that's the thing to do. Go to the temple. So we went to the church. And we tried to decide where to go. And um, there was a church that we had been to for a conference um, called Cross Point. Uh, Pete Wilson there is the pastor. And frankly, he's very cutting edge. And, uh, you know, the day I heard him speak, his hair was spiked up about this tall. Had combat boots on. It was just, you know, just Pete. So anyway, so we decided we wanted to go to Pete's church. But we didn't want to drive all the way into Nashville. We were in Franklin. So Judy looked on the Internet and found that there's a Cross Point a group that was meeting, church that was meeting there in Franklin. And, and so we went. And they were meeting in a school. They were fixing to move into a, a more permanent building that, actually next week, in January 12th. So they, they're meeting in a school. So we walked in, they're friendly, you know, and all that stuff. And we sat down. And they had a worship team like we have a worship team. And the worship leader that had the microphone just happened to be a girl. And here's what she said. And I mean, it resonated with me like powerfully. I mean, instantly it resonated with me. Says, we want to thank you for coming today. And there's one thing you need to know. This is a safe place. And that resonated with me. And instantly as a pastor, I began thinking, one, what did it mean that it was a safe place? And two, how does the ecclesia that I lead, is it a safe place? So again, that day, almost while they were leading us in worship, this is coming in my brain. And I took the word safe. And I took that S word. And it meant that it was secure. There was security here. You, you, we have no idea. Now, I sensed it last Sunday. I'm a pastor. I've been doing Jesus for like 38 years. I've been a pastor for half of my life. Um, I did the math and said, wait, if I'm, I've been a pastor for 30, if I'm 60, that's half my life. I've been a pastor. But even so, when I walk into a building, a new building, a new group of people, there's that certain insecurity. What do I expect? How will they respond? How will I feel? Will I be embarrassed? And we should be a church, a group of people that people can walk in and they can honestly feel secure. That they know that it's a safe zone. Now, let me tell you what a safe zone is. In Afghanistan, there are, there are parts of the compound and parts of the country that are called safe zones. And what that means is this. In fact, let me, let me bring you to the war zone, the actual area. There are parts of Iraq that are, that are safe for another reason. But in this particular area, there's a compound where there's been no combat for a long time. And inside that combat, compound, you are not required to carry your weapons and you're not required to wear your flat gear. It is a safe zone. I want to encourage you as the ecclesia that we be a safe zone. That people can leave their weapons at the door. Knowing that this is a good safe place to be. And also they can let their armor down. Yeah, come on, you know it. Don't, don't we all? And by the way, this isn't about visitors. This is about us. This is about us. You know, how often do we feel like we have to put a smile on our face? We have to put a plastic face on because we don't want people to think we're struggling. I mean, we walk through that door and we instantly become someone else, even though our heart is breaking, even though there's something going on in our lives. We need to be the kind of ecclesia, the kind of church where people know it's safe and they can check their weapons at the door. They, will, they won't need the, the weapons of barb. They won't need the weapons of, of, of sarcasm or criticism. They won't need that because they know it's a safe place. So we need to ask ourselves today, is this a, self, a safe place? If people walk in, do they feel safe here or they feel nervous, as the video said? Do they feel intimidated? Do they feel like they might be attacked? Now, this, the A word in safe, S-A, is the word acceptance. It's a place where they will be accepted 
for who and what they are. Now, this is hard. This is hard. But I hope that we would be the kind of ecclesia, the kind of church, where regardless if you're rich or poor... You know, by the way, can I just pause and chase a rabbit? The day I preached in view of a call, I talked about this. I talked about the fact that two blocks north, that there were some apartments there, and people that lived there, generally speaking, are on hard times. And I preached that day and said that we need to be the kind of church that's willing to reach out to those people. I'm glad to report to you 14 years later, your pastor believes largely we are that kind of church. We are a church that does not care if you are very rich and we don't care if you're very poor. We don't care if you're black and we don't care if you're white. We don't care if, even if you call yourself a big sinner or a little sinner. We all are products of God's grace. Now, here's the deal. I want you to get this. The way you work on acceptance, okay, is that you do remember this. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Would you say it with me, please? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In fact, we don't stop sinning when we become Christians. It would be cool if we did. It would be cool if we were perfect after we received Christ. But the truth is, even after we are saved by God's grace, we live by God's grace. We need a Savior on the day we trusted Jesus. We need a Savior day by day because we still fail and we still sin. So it helps you accept people when you understand that all have sin. Our sins may have different names and labels. Our sins may have different consequences, but sin. So when a person walks that door, all you need to do is say, look, there's another sinner. Just like me. Imperfect people are welcome because we are a church of imperfect people. Understand that if a person on church walks through the door, they might be wearing some weird clothes. They may have more tats than you've ever seen in your life. Their ears may have 27 holes. They have things stuck where you never dreamed things could be stuck. But you just need to remind yourself, oh, there's another sinner. Just like I am a sinner, they are a sinner. The difference might be I've met Jesus and they've yet to meet Jesus. That's the only difference there is. So it needs to be a place that accepts people. They can feel secure where they are. Then there's friendly. There's friendly. We should be a place where if you are a stranger, you're not a stranger very long. Now, is anybody, whenever I say this, people laugh. Did you know I'm kind of an introvert? Now, see, see? No, put me in a group I know, and I'm the life of the party. But put me in a group I don't know, and I'm just like a wallflower. You can ask that woman. You know, we walk into a conference or something, and, you know, she says, well, I'm going to go here and talk to somebody. I'll either back up to the wall and stand there, or I'll find one person that smiles at me, and I'll latch on that person for dear life. I've got a friend. I got a friend. That's all I need. But you know, we need to be a kind of church where people do walk in the door. And if you don't recognize them, that we make them no longer feel like a stranger. Now, that requires us getting out of our comfort zone, doesn't it? That means that, that when we see someone we don't know, we actually have the courage to reach out and say, Hi, my name is Dwayne, and we're glad you're here today. What's your name? Making them feel friendly. Now, most of you can remember a time recently when you went into a, a new situation. And some of you, like Brent, Brent can talk to trees. You know, he'll walk up and embrace a tree, but not everyone is like that. A lot of us wrestle with that. So those of us who wrestle with that, we need to ask God to give us the courage and the strength to be a friendly person, welcoming and embracing people who I promise you are more insecure than you are. So we need to be friendly. And then lastly, we need to be encouraging. We, by grace, need to put out the welcome mat. Now, here's the illustration. And, and probably theologically, you can find a flaw with it. I don't think so, but I think you, you might try. You know, before, before the cross, 
You know, there was the Holy of Holies. And only the high priest could go in once a year. You've heard this before. Only the high priest could go in. They put a rope around his leg in case he offended God. They could drag the body out so it wouldn't decay in the Holy of Holies. They put, they put bells on his robe so they would make sure he was still alive and still moving by the tinkling of the bell. That's just how it was. And then when Jesus Christ died on this cross and he took full, uh, made full atonement for our sin and also took on the full wrath of God, then what happened was the veil in the temple separating the Holy and the Holy of Holies was ripped in two. And it's really cool because the Gospels record it was ripped from top to bottom. And this curtain, I've heard it said before, six inches thick. If you can imagine a fabric that is six inches thick. And it was ripped from top to bottom. And because of, now watch, not because we're nice people, not because we do good works, not because we're not too bad, but because of the atonement power of Jesus Christ, because of the fact He endured the wrath of God, the fact that He defeated sin and death and the power of sin, and that anyone who puts their faith and trust in Him, through that, God just reached down from heaven and ripped open the Holy of Holies. And He basically said, through Christ, you're welcome. Through Christ, you're welcome. And that's the encouraging power. The person who walks in and who, who has sinned grossly needs to know that we believe in a Christ who can forgive sins and we know it because He forgave ours. We don't even, listen, we don't have a head knowledge of God's grace. We have experiential, not experience. We've experienced grace by experience. We know grace by experience. Some of these words are big for guys 60. Let me just tell you. We know God's grace. And because we've experienced grace, we can give grace. We can show grace. So it should be a friendly place, a secure place, an acceptable place, a friendly place, an encouraging place. That sets an environment. Here's what it does. See, I'm going to offend people. I'm not going to offend people. The gospel is. When there's a guy sitting back there and I tell him he's a sinner, you know, God's word says he's a sinner, he may get offended because he says, wait a minute, I'm a sinner. I think I'm pretty stinking good. Or, or perhaps a person walks into another faith, a Mormon walks in. Or, or perhaps a, a, a Muslim walks in. And I tell him that it's not by works of any sort. It's strictly by God's grace. That's offensive. When I tell people that Jesus Christ, that's offensive. The gospel will be offensive. In fact, we have a message coming over here called the offensive gospel. Let me, let the word of God, let the gospel offend people. But let's not us be offensive. Let's make sure people walk in. They feel this security. They feel acceptance. Uh, they feel a friendly environment. They feel encouragement. Let them feel that. Then that sets them up to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. They see something different in us than they see at Walmart, than they see at the Elks Club or the Moose Club, or they see anywhere else. They see something different, and that is God's grace being lived out. Make sense? Make sense? Now, what, what do we want to avoid? If you've, if you've done any visitation, if you've talked to anybody, you will know that a lot of people bear the scars of the church. Some of you have been deeply offended in church. Am I right? Can I have an amen? Been offended in church. And a lot of people bear the scars of the church. What does that look like? How does that play out? Well, you know, you could probably preach a whole sermon on that, but I want to take the word scar, S-C-A-R, and tell you what it can look like. Pay very close attention to this. The first thing we have to be careful of is sarcasm. 
Now, thank you very much for giving me a great sermon illustration. Now, I need, I need to stop here too. This was hard for me. I try to be transparent with you without breaking the glass house too much. But when I went through what I wrote uh, about scars, I saw myself too much. Particularly in the first two. I saw myself. This is very difficult for me to preach because preachers sometimes preach through victory and sometimes through need. And this is a need in my life. So it spoke my heart. And by nature, I find a lot of humor and sarcasm. Now, thank you, Brent, for giving me a great illustration. Because not all sarcasm is bad. For instance, y'all said some things to me I can't repeat from the pulpit this morning. And it was great. You want to know why? They're all about age. And it's my birthday and I'm 60 years old. And every time you said something, you said, we love you. I mean it. There was not, not once of all the comments that were made. And boy, there were some doozies. Not once did I go, oh, that hurt. I embraced it because the environment was right for that. So there's really nothing wrong with sarcasm, but it's got to be used in the, in the right context. And sometimes at church, it's not. Sometimes at church, it's not. Let, let me give you an example. Um, there was a guy, you know, sometimes we, sometimes we don't know what to say, so we, we say the wrong thing. It's like, like when they were on the Mount of Transfiguration and, and Peter woke up and, and there was God the Father in this great cloud and there was Jesus and he was transformed in all white shining thing and, and there's Elijah and there was Moses and he was all fired and he goes, let's build a tent. That probably wasn't the right thing to say. Well, I had a good friend named Everett at Cobden First Baptist Church. Everett was quite an unusual young man. He was a self-made millionaire, um, had made it the hard way through trucking. Um, someone, I won't mention a person's name, with, with white hair and owns a parts and car business, um, like Rod, um, made the comment that how tight I was. You know, uh, you can ask him the exact comment it was. Um, but anyway, so, if you, Rod, if you think I'm tight... You should have known Everett. Everett had coats from the 30s. I mean, you know, Everett, Everett wore stripes and plaids and thought it matched. So Everett goes to a funeral. Here's the setup. The guy standing at the casket lost his wife about five months ago to cancer. He is not a believer. Then, five months later, his son is killed in a motorcycle accident. Everett walks up. And says this. You know, all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. I think the man said, you can take your God and shove it. It wasn't... Now, did he mean to be offensive? No. But that guy was lost. He was hurting and had no idea. And Everett said the first thing that came to his brain. We've got to be careful because sometimes the first thing that comes to our our brain is not the right thing to say. So I give that introduction to say this. When someone comes to church and they haven't been here in a while, be careful. You know, if a person, first off, if a person comes in that door and they're out in the world, they're not believers, don't say, I'm sure surprised to see you here. I I can't believe you came to church. Come on. See, but we say those things because, one, they're probably in our heart. But, but two, we don't know what to say. And if someone comes 
and, and hasn't been here a while, it's easy to say something like, where have you been? You know, I said one time, and I regret it, but I said one time on, on Easter, I think it was, we had 600 people, and I said something like this. I said, I said, you know, we have church every week. <laughs> Y'all can come, but we have church every week. So I'm saying this, be very careful with what you say. The, the tongue is so powerful, it can be used for very uh, mean things, and also can be used, you know, infrequently, but, but often, same time, often for saying things we really don't mean. So be very careful. Avoid sarcasm. And this kind of goes downhill, by the way. Next comes criticism. Criticism. Now, again, I believe criticism has its place. But may I be very honest with you? Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, is not the time or the place for criticism. Now, whether it's me or whether it's someone else in the church, you don't like what they're wearing, um, you don't like something they said, you don't, you got a bone to pick with them, let me just say this. Criticism is not a spiritual gift. Okay? And we justify it by saying, yeah, but it's true. You know, if you really need to speak to someone about something that's very critical, see them during the week. But but let's let's make this a safe place. Let's make this kind of place. And gosh, I got to spill my guts. I'm sorry, but I got to. You know, for, for too long, if I walked in, the toilet wasn't clean or something, I'd find me a customer and say, that toilet's not clean. I can wait till Monday. The truth was, was the toilet clean? No. Do I need to say it on, on Sunday morning? No. We've just got to be careful. There's a time and a place for criticism, but this safe place is not. I know of a guy, Brent, who used to come to church here. He held a position of authority at the school. And someone nailed his fanny in the men's bathroom right over there. He quit coming. He found him another place to go. And I asked him, what went wrong? What happened? He goes, Dwayne, I was attacked at church. And I don't go to church to be attacked. So I went and found another church home. Be careful of criticism. There might be a time when criticism is justified. But save it for a non-safe place. Save it for a time. And then, by the way, pray about it before you say it. And, and then comes, again, follow the line. We have sarcasm. We have criticism. And then we have alienation. We alienate. We choose who we want to fellowship with. If, if there's something going on in someone's life, our tendency is to push them back and say, I want to associate with you because I'm better than that. Especially if it involves sin. If, if we know there's a sin in a person's life, we have a tendency to pull back from that person and alienate them. And what that does is say, we don't like you. We don't want to associate with you. And I really believe, I really believe that we should be very careful. Um, here's cool. Acts 9.26. Paul gets, Saul, you know, the guy who likes, you know, likes to kill Christians, Saul gets saved. And here's what 926 says. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. They called Saul a liar. They were so afraid of him. So they disassociated with them. We need to be so careful of that. We, we, listen, we need to accept people, not alienate people from who and from where they were. Now, here's the problem. There's a risk. The risk is this. If there's a person living in sin, and we know there's a sin, if we love them and associate with them, they may think that we approve of their sin. Am I right? Isn't that why we don't Want to associate with sinners? Well, if I'm a friend, they may think I approve of their lifestyle. 
Jesus did that. Jesus hung around sinners more than he did the established church. Your love and your compassion to a person does not indicate approval. Can I say that again? Your love and your compassion does not accept approval. So we're sitting in Sunday school class, and I told the Sunday school class as Jay taught this lesson, I said, don't be surprised when you hear this stuff. We did not, clear, we did not get together. There's another word. We didn't get together. And, and, and I said, don't be surprised when you hear some of this stuff that we taught in Sunday school, that was taught in Sunday school in our sermon today. But from last week, Miranda Paul taught for Judy as we were gone, and she put a quote from Rick Warren. And I, I was saying, boy, I need to get that. Boy, I need to get that. Fine. I said, give me your pencil, Jared. I need to write this down. Here's what he says. Our culture has accepted two huge lies. The first is that if you agree with someone's lifestyle, you must fear or hate them. Does that ring a bell? The second is that to love someone when you agree with everything they believe or do. Let me try it again because that's not right. The second is that to love someone means you agree with everything they believe or do. That's what I'm trying to say to you today. I'm trying to tell you that if you embrace someone, it doesn't mean you agree with their lifestyle. It doesn't agree you agree with their sin. It means you're trying to be like Christ and love them. Because you can't change someone, help change someone, and you can't win someone if you're pushing them back. If you're pushing them back. Now, here's the finish of the Rick Warren quote. Both are nonsense. You don't have to compromise convictions to be compassionate. Rick Warren. You don't have to compromise convictions to be compassionate. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. See, again, did God compromise when he saved Brent? Did God compromise when he saved Beth, uh, Beth, the queen? This 60 thing is hard. No, God didn't compromise. And neither do we. When we reach out in the love of Christ, we are not compromising. We're being like Jesus. See, the last thing, we had that, we had that sarcasm, criticism, and alienation. And it leads to rejection. In other words, a person goes so far, we push them back so far, so far, in rejection, they finally leave, and they leave scarred. And then you know what we do? We say something like this. I knew they weren't authentic. I knew they weren't real. I, I, knew, I knew they wouldn't stick. Don't we? We kind of pride ourselves at pushing them out the door. And again, I'm going to go back to what I said. I wrestle with some of this stuff. The first two particularly. But I really wrestle with this stuff. And as I'm preparing to teach this to you, God is speaking to my heart. There are a couple guys that live down my alley that I rejected for two years. I put a wall up. And they need Jesus. And finally, God, I was preaching about prayer. And over a year ago now, God spoke to my heart and says... You need to love these guys and pray for them that I would come into their lives. Now, like I told you, I wore this thing, had been off my, brace, off my wrist in about 14 months now, and their names are on this bracelet. Do I agree with their lifestyle? Absolutely not. Do they need Jesus? Absolutely. And every day I pray, God, show yourself to them, and God, use me. Use me. That's how we should respond to lostness and to carnality in the body of Christ. So we have sarcasm, criticism, and alienation, and then rejection. So how should it be? How does all this play out? And this is the main scripture, and, and we're almost done, actually. 
Here's, here's, what, here's what the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25 and 23. He says this. Let us hold on, this is verse 23, let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let me read it again. Let us hold on to the confession, what we say about what we believe, of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now, we need to anchor ourselves in Jesus Christ. He is our confession. Our confession is that we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that He died for our sin, that He arose defeating death, that He's ascended to heaven and coming back for us, and by grace, through His sacrifice, we can come into relationship with God. That is what we believe. And that is a way of grace. So we need to have a deep understanding of what we believe about ourselves, what we believe about God, and what we believe about grace. Anchor ourselves. If you have to get up every morning and look in the mirror and say, My name is Dwayne, and I am a sinner. Do it. If you need to write on your mirror to remind yourself what Jesus did for you, that will keep you in the way of grace. Because I'm telling you, when we don't capitalize on what Jesus Christ saved us from, we'll pretty soon get pretty religious. We'll get pretty rule-keeping. And that's when we start looking down our long, skinny noses at people who aren't quite as good, we think, as, as they are. We're just a little bit better than them. And see, you can't, you can't just talk grace and live the law. You know, we all sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a rich like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. That was written by a slave trader. He experienced God's grace and he couldn't get over it. Church, Ecclesia, let's never get over God's amazing grace. What he did for us. I gave my testimony standing right there on that red line yesterday. And I told them how the greatest day of my life was October 26, 1975. And I said, there are two kinds of people in the world. There's people who are so good they think they don't need a Savior. And there's people so bad they think they can't be saved. I was the one who was so good. Spent 21 years of my life in church and never met Jesus. But one day I experienced God's grace. And no, I'm not over it yet. I'm just not over it yet. So, so let's, 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 let's be concerned about one another in order to promote love and good works. Verse 24. Be concerned about one another. That, that means physically. If you know someone with a physical need, I'm not sure we can meet every need. But let's be sure we care about my wife. Bless her heart says, hey, we need to make sure that so-and-so down the alley, make sure they've got food, make sure they've got milk and bread for the coming storm. Meet needs, care about physically. Care about emotionally. I try to be careful not pointing people out, but dude, you met my emotional needs so much this week in what you did this morning. I wasn't actually feeling unloved. But my tank is so full today. Because he met an emotional need of mine. Did you know you were going to do that? <laughs> nope. <laughs> he goes, I just want to get the preacher. <laughs> Thank you so much. We need to make sure we meet people's emotional needs. John eleven thirty five. Jesus is at a funeral. You know, Lazarus is dead. He's fixing to raise Lazarus up. And he comes overwhelmed with grief. He's troubling his soul. And the Bible says Jesus weeps. We need to learn to weep with people. 
You celebrated with me today. When a baby is born, we celebrate together. When a birthday comes, we celebrate together. When a promotion is gotten, we're not jealous. We celebrate with one another. Meet emotional needs. Be concerned about one another. Meet spiritual needs. See, there's sometimes, like, like Abigail, Judy, that involves doing the hard thing. When we see a brother that's going down the wrong path or a sister going on the wrong path, and we don't want to say something, but we feel like we need to out of love for that person. If you see a brother overtaken with a fault, Paul wrote in Galatians, you who are spiritual need to seek and restore such as one with a spirit of weakness. Meekness, lest you also be overtaken. We need to be concerned physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Be concerned one another in order to promote, have an environment to promote love and good works. When we're concerned about one another uh, emotionally and physically and spiritually, that creates an environment of growth and good works. Come on. That makes sense. See, you Sunday school teachers, you should be a microcosm of what I'm talking about. You really need to ask yourself, when my class gets together, do, do we, are we concerned about people? Do we try to meet physical needs and emotional needs and spiritual needs? Is it a safe place where people can come? Is there acceptance? Is there friendliness? Is there encouragement? Or is there sarcasm, criticism, and alienation and rejection? This is huge. You want to know why this is huge? Because look to your left. You got to move your head. Now look to your right. The person sitting next to you could be the next person who gets scarred and leaves. Some people I know would never leave a church regardless of what. But some of you have gone through this. You know, you shared your stories with me. And the wound was so deep, you couldn't stand it. Even though you've been a member of a church for a long time, you had to leave. The pain was so great. And it can happen to anyone. Let's make this a place where people feel safe. Where people feel loved. Where people want to come. And then he says this. Verse 25. Not staying away. From our worship meetings, as some habitually do, but encouraging each other, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, that means let's not stay away. And that's my challenge. If I can encourage you, just simply do this Is church still relevant? Yes, it is. Come on. Yes, it is. Church is relevant. If you're a parent, your kids need what happens in Sunday school classes. They need to learn the Bible stories starting in preschool where they simply learn God is love and God loves me. And they get in the children's department and they learn a bit more how God loved them through Jesus Christ. They become in our student ministry and they hear about serving others after they trust Jesus Christ. And as adults, we, we learn, we fellowship, we grow together so we can continue to serve the God that we love. Church is still very relevant. It really is. Now, our challenge is this. See, you're here on a really bad day. So to tell you you ought to be in church would be fruitless. Amen? But here's what let's do. Let's make sure we give them no reason and no excuse not to come. Let's make sure that if a person doesn't come to church, it's nothing we did. Let's make sure we don't give a reason or purpose. I just want to go to church because it hurts. I feel offended. Let's make sure we make it a place where people feel safe. And that will open the door for them becoming regular attenders. So let me close with a challenge. It's a, it's a question. You know, will you commit to make it, one, 
Will you make a commitment to be? Will you be the kind of ecclesia that, and then, by the way, I don't know if I really want to say this or not. And about then, my wife's saying, then don't say it, Dwayne. It's not bad. It's really not. It's not, it's not bad. But we may need to hold one another accountable on this. I, I know me. And you, you know when my sarcasm, most of you, if my sarcasm is biting, you need to say, Pastor, that wasn't kind. Now, don't do it in front of people. That wouldn't be kind either. You know? But, but beyond, Dwayne, gosh, I've done it. I hate to tell you I've done it. So, so we need to hold each other accountable. You know? Uh, in, in the right way. So are we willing to be the ecclesia that makes a safe place? Not only for new people, but for us. You should never want to be in a situation where you walk through that door and you feel threatened as a member. If you've been gone three weeks, you shouldn't be thinking about what will people say. You should expect to be loved. That's what you expect. So are you willing to make a commitment to be and yes, are you willing to make the commitment to be there? Are you willing to make the commitment to make church a priority? And this is so huge. It's just like this. You know, there's nothing wrong with, with people obeying the Bible. That's obviously a very good thing to do. But if you're trying to obey, do the word of God to win God's favor, that's wrong because you can't win God's favor by doing good stuff. You have God's favor by grace. Okay? So I don't want you to just commit, well, you know, it's a... Going to church is the right thing to do. So, so we're going to go to church. That's, that's what we're going to do. No. Daddy, that, that might get them. <laughs> like Beth Moore said. Someone asked her a question. said, so how do you get your kids to go to church? She says, I look at her and say, get your tail in the car. We're going to church. Beth Moore. Beth Moore. I guess there's a time for that. But our attitude should be one of, I understand the value of church. And therefore, I want to go to church. That's what you want to instill in your kids. Sometimes you'll have to tell them to get their car and you get their bottom in the car. Sometimes, though, just you think, this is so important. Explain to them why church is important. And then have the desire yourself to go. Have the desire yourself to be a part of the ecclesia. Would you bow your heads, please? You know, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, this is such an important message for the first Sunday of the year. And I really want to affirm the fact that our church, to a large degree, is a safe place. Thank God for that. I'm glad we are a church that accepts people. Thank God for that. I think we're pretty friendly. And I think the worship, hopefully the preaching, and the fellowship is an encouragement thing. But we've not arrived. We should keep striving for those things. And then you need to individually evaluate because the, the scar part was an individual thing. Am I unkindly sarcastic? Do I constantly bring forth criticism on Sunday morning or Sunday night or Wednesday night? Do I alienate people because of the way they dress, the way they act, or what's going on in their lives? And have I led anyone to rejection? Has anyone left the church? Has anyone fixed to leave the church because of me? Those are hard, honest questions. As we begin 
this coming year, how cool would it be if Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23, 24, and 25 becomes a way of life for us, encouraging one another, um, uh, bringing comfort to one another, more regular in our tenants than we were in 2013. How incredible would that be? Now, I told you toward the end of the message that there are a couple kind of folks. There's one who said, I'm so good, I don't need a Savior, and I'm so bad, I can't be forgiven. I just want to make sure you understand from what I said today that because of what Jesus Christ did on a Roman cross 2,100 years ago, not in just dying, but taking our sin and experiencing the wrath of God, paying for our sins on the death on the cross, that we can have forgiveness. And friend, I don't know what you've done, but I want to promise you this. God's grace is sufficient. God's grace is sufficient. The pilot said, if you knew what I'd done, you wouldn't worry. God's grace is sufficient. Brother Brent will be standing down front here in just a moment. And if you'd like to know more about Jesus and what he did and how you can come in a relationship with God through him, Brent and got some friends here, I'd be glad to share with you that. And for us, my friends, members of the Ecclesia, I think it's one of those days I want you to stand, but I want you to sing. And I want you to just kind of think about what we talked about today and ask the question, you know, will I be? And as far as lies in me, will I be the ecclesia that God wants me to be? And then will I be there in 2014? So God, as I said before, my cup is so full. I have experienced the life of ecclesia today in my life. And I'm so grateful for that. I want to pray, Father, for your way to be done in the invitation time. Father, I pray uh, for the ones who do not know yet your son, that today be the day that they experience the greatest gift ever, and that's uh, experience your God's wonderful grace in their lives, understanding what Christ did and how their sins can be forgiven. Father, for all of us, I've confessed my, my father, my problem, my sin, with the sarcasm, criticism particularly. Father, how that needs to be worked on in my life. So speak to our hearts, God. Speak to our hearts. Help us to be more like your son, Jesus. And God, that's only powerful, only done through your power. We acknowledge that. Jesus, I pray this in your precious name. Amen.